And so that being said, we are in the book of Genesis. Um, if you haven't been around or maybe you're new with us, we're studying through Genesis 1 through about 23 um, this summer. And so we are going to be in Genesis 5 today. I'm going to do some recap. But we started a couple of weeks ago looking at the beginning and it's such a great moment and time to get back to kind of foundations, to purpose. Why did God create uh, the way that he created? What is our purpose? Why did he decide to do the things that he did? Why? Where's evil come from? H how does all these things transpire? Because there's a lot of ideologies. There's a lot of philosophies. There's a lot of religious and ideas of how this all came about. If we can get to the word of God, study the word of God and see what it says. It helps frame our worldview to be able to deal with all of the things that we deal with currently. And, and we want to help you really depend and trust on the rock of God and his sovereignty and his power that he's not chewing his nails wondering what's gonna happen. He is in control and he wants us to take respite in him not in the heat, but in him, and trust that his plan will come into fruition, but also not just drift and just wait for it to happen, but also that he wants you to be a part of it. He wants you to use your time, treasure your talent in order to be a part of this beautiful story of redemption. I don't know about you, but I love the scripture. Now, growing up, I didn't quite understand it. Like the story of God, it felt like there's a bunch of different stories. You got David and Goliath, you got Daniel, the lion's den. You got all these stories. Like, how does this work all together? Thankfully, um, we're in a day and age where you see some of that. I mean, you can YouTube and find out so much information that we didn't have back in the day. But church just seemed, back when I was young and we went every once in a while, just seemed like just a discipline. Just you show up, you go, you read the Bible. And every once in a while, my parents would have a moment with God. Maybe they'd come to the altar and then we would go home and they'd be like, you need to read your Bible. And that would last about a week. Uh, and then they, we stopped going to church for several weeks and just got out of the habit. But I remember those moments as like, we're having to read the Bible, we're getting the Bible, but didn't really understand it didn't really appreciate how wonderful it is. And it just became like this religious act or this ritual that you have to do. And I'm telling you, when you don't understand what you have in your hands or on your phone or on your iPad and how beautiful it is, this story of God, how it all comes together and it paints this beautiful picture of who God is first. It's not just telling you who you are. We are discovering who God is. And as we see him, we start to act like him and want to be like him and be devoted to him. It's about him. And as you see it unfold, it's such a beautiful, epic story. In fact, the story starts in the book of Genesis, chapter one, verse one, with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. I don't know about you, but that sounds like an epic tale, doesn't it? You know, many of you know I'm a big Matrix fan. Part one, not necessarily two, three, or four, um, but part one. Some of you like Lord of the Rings fans, maybe Harry Potter fans, and you like love the world of it, or Star Wars. Some of you are weirdo Star Wars people, and so uh, like th those are like vir virtual cults, virtual cults, and so, uh, which we're fine with that. That's cool. Get your lightsaber. But 
this epic tale where you like enter into this world and like what's going on? I'm trying to figure out what is happening. And it has some of these same characteristics when you open the page one or open the comic book one or open the movie one and you see in the beginning and you see this epic story and narrative that's supposed to pull you in to give intrigue, to give imagination to give truth, to give a worldview, the way you view the world, to help shape your everyday life and understanding of how we got where we are, why you're here, what happened in history. And that's the point of the scripture. As Moses is writing down and penning these to the children of Israel, that's who it's written to initially. People that were in bondage and enslaved and had all these other ideas of what was going on and how a, a, a lowercase g God created the world and enslaved people. You then see this beautiful epic narrative that the God of the universe, the God of all gods, Yahweh, in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And we continue to read what it says and here's the deal. It ends, this isn't the last verse, but the scripture that we have and the canon that we have in Revelation, it ends with these words, and they will reign forever and ever. Sounds like an epic tale. Sounds like something worth studying and knowing about. How, how does it start here? How, how does it end there? They're gonna reign forever. And not that they're going to be their own Lord or their own God, because that's what we try to do. We try to create, we try to get the kingdom that we want with love and peace and grace and everybody just gets along. We want that kingdom, but we want it without the king. We want to be king. And that becomes the problem in the middle. But at the end, they will reign forever. Who will they reign? Under the same God that created everything in a new way, in a beautiful way, in his kingdom, with him as king. And it's a beautiful tale of how God is going to do that, how he started it and how he will end it. And we are not at the ending yet, chronologically, but we get to see that God has a plan. He's sovereign. And I get great comfort from the sovereignty of God that he is all-powerful, because I don't know about you, I'm very limited not only in my power, but in my understanding. Maybe you're super prideful and you already have everything figured out. I do not, and I want to trust in someone who is loving and good and gracious that I read about, that in the end I will get to reign with in this life, in the life to come. It's a beautiful story, and so easily we can just, like, oh, i got to read my Bible, or, oh, yeah, okay, I went to church, they told me to read my Bible, okay, open your Bible. But no, this is a beautiful, epic tale, and it's speaking to you. It is for you. It's not necessarily written to you, but it is for you. Now, in the past, when we've talked about this tale, I just want to kind of go broad, and then we're going to go right into Genesis chapter 5, which is all about genealogy. Super fun. I flew back last night just to preach on this because I didn't want to hand it to Scott Fiddler or anybody to have to preach on genealogies. You're welcome, by the way. You're welcome. Um, I'll take a bonus check later uh, for that. But the epic tale looks like this, these words. You see creation. And then you have a fall. In fact, you actually have three falls that we're going to see in Genesis. Three separate falls. Just a continuing falling. But then you have a redemption story. 
a redemption dialogue, a redemption good news that God has a plan to redeem. And then final one day, renewal. Right now we are in the redemption heading towards renewal. But we're not in there yet. It's, it's the there but not yet there. It's the kingdom of God here but not fully realized yet. That's where we're living right now. But you look at the whole tale, starting in Genesis 1, creation. You have creation. As Scott spoke so well about our creator God that made us in his image, the imago Dei, the image of God. It's Latin, image of God. We are created in that image, so we're created for dignity. You're not just an animal, so you just give into your animal instincts. It's a beautiful thing that God says, I created you in my image to be like my likeness, to look like me, to act like me. That is dignity. Like he, he calls you to a higher place, not to succumb to your animal instincts. It's actually a beautiful thing. And we know in our culture, as we just call people to go into their animal instincts, give into all of their things, we actually hurt people and don't prophesy good things and exciting things and what you can be. We just say, this is who you are. And it's a degradation of people. It's not dignity. But scripture gives you dignity right away. It's like a child that you look at and say, you can do better, not you're going to be just like him. You're going to be just like your dad who failed or your mom who did that. Scripture automatically always says, you get to be, you'll never be God, but you're created in his image to be like him, to be with him, to walk with him. Listen, this is a beautiful tale, better than any other tale, not just to serve him and be his slave, but to be with him. This is why even the angels were envious of this creation. You and I get to walk with God, head held high in dignity with him, to rule and reign the earth with him over us, guiding us. This was the creation. And the Bible never said it was perfect. Don't get it confused. Creation wasn't perfect. People weren't made perfect. Adam and Eve were not perfect, lest we see later they fall. They were good. God created, he said, it's good. It's like after you mow your lawn and you go, it's good, maybe, if you have like the lines, right? My, my mom used to make me uh, uh, vacuum the carpet. And uh, I learned really quick that if I don't do it right, that she'll just take over. And so I, was just, uh, I don't have the lines right, she took over. And it was easy, then I just, you know, play video games. Um, that's manipulation. But with God, with God, he looks at his creation, he says, it's not perfect, but it is good. The word in Hebrew is tov. Tov, it is good. And then with man, it is very good. And he gives them dominion, and he says, rule, multiply. He's an empowering God. He's not like maybe your boss that micromanages you and tells you everything to do. He's like, I want you to flourish the same way you see me flourish. I want you to organize. I want you to bring out of the chaos and disorder, order just like I did with you. And he's a hands-on, perfect father walking with Adam and Eve. We see this, Genesis 2, creation of man. We see Genesis 3 already. We don't know how long has passed. The Bible's not trying to give you exact understanding or chronological order. So whether you believe the beginning was 6,000 years ago or 6 million years ago, that's not the point. Don't miss the forest for the trees. The point is to look at purpose and see the characteristic of a beautiful, awesome, amazing, empowering God who wants us to enjoy the same things he enjoys in the same way. 
You see peace. You see tranquility. You see hope. You see love. You see the fruits of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. You see these, and then God gives an opportunity to trees in Genesis 3. Because, see, God is so good, he didn't want just robots. He wanted people to choose him, relationally connected with them. He gave them free will. In fact, he said some of the first words, you are free to eat of anywhere in this garden, but not this one. And he didn't do it to tempt man. The Bible says that God does not tempt, but he did it to test man to say, will you trust me? So many people read the Bible in their like prideful way and say, oh, this is just about an apple and there's a serpent. It's so primitive. Listen, we don't necessarily read every page of the Bible literally, but we do read it literarily. So when there's poetry, we read it in the poetic form. Psalms will say, God will gird you like, like a bird with his wings. That doesn't mean God has wings. It's poetic imagery. So lead, read it literarily, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful in this fact that we have the free will, and man and women decide to not trust in God's word and to do what Scripture says that really, really the three main sins, every sin falls into this category from 1 John, the lust of the flesh which is your physical senses, the lust of the eyes, what you see, and the pride of life. And you see this with the enemy's temptation. They give into the lust of the flesh. In fact, Eve saw the apple and saw that it was good. It says she looked and saw and took. And throughout scripture, if you just read it, you're constantly gonna see people that fall into sin. They look and they take, whether it's sexually, whether it's through appetite, the eyes, the flesh, the pride of life. You constantly see this same rhythm in the scripture. It's trying to paint this picture that God created good, but then we botched it up. We fell. But what's interesting is God doesn't come in and hammer them. Like maybe some of you that have kids, they do something wrong, something's crazy, and you come in and you're just ready to spank him. He actually comes in, he's saying, where are you? What happened? What's going on? And they're hiding. Automatically, we see this this act against God, this defiance in his, against his trust, you automatically see death reigning in their soul. They have now, what we say, there's four areas. They've broken the relationship between them and God, between them and each other, other people, like we see nowadays, divisions, lack of reconciliation. They've broken within themselves all the mental health problems that we're having right now and the brokenness within ourselves that started here at the garden. Death to self, death to relationship, death to relationship with God, and death ultimately to relationship with creation. We see the fall, and it just continues to fall. Scripture is sometimes prescriptive and prescribing something to you. Sometimes it's just describing, descriptive, describing what's happening. And that's what it's doing here. It's not saying this is good. It's saying this is what happened. And it's so funny as God tries to come and talk with man, with woman, they're hiding and they're blaming. They hide maybe behind their keyboard and just yell at people. And then they blame it's that person, it's that party, it's that thing, which do we still do that today or what? Why would I take ownership in taking and eating when I can blame someone else for why I did it? At some point, 
I did not have good parents. They're, they weren't great. They did the best with what they could. They were better than their parents. So I have to learn to walk in forgiveness with what I didn't get and start to take some ownership, maybe, of some things. But see, sin doesn't allow you to do that. As we would say, when you're in sin, you're insane. You don't think right because there's death to your own senses in your own way. And God immediately establishes a new covenant, has to kill an animal. A sacrifice starts right away to demonstrate and show how death will reign. And he covers them right away. But he also has this beautiful beautiful words that he gives to them because right after they sinned, right after they fell, he had a redemption plan. He knew how he was gonna redeem humanity. In Genesis three, he actually says this. Here's what's gonna happen. He's talking to Eve and he says, your seed, the genealogies or the seed of you is going to produce two different lines. One line is gonna be the seed of the serpent of evil and one line is going to hold, it's going to have evil as well, but ultimately it's going to hold the, the, the final Messiah. And he tells her this and he says, this Messiah will have his heel bitten, but will stomp on the head of the other seed, of the other horrible evil seed. He was declaring a redemption story right away and declaring that Jesus is gonna come. He's going to be sniped in his heel on the cross, but that very thing is gonna allow him to crush the head of the enemy and bring redemption back to man. Bring back our relationship with God, our relationship with one another as one family, not divided, no matter your color, no matter where you came from, your culture, He's going to bring back the relationship with nature ultimately fully one day and our relationship within ourselves. Jesus is going to do that. He didn't just die on the cross to one day take you to heaven. He died to reconcile the whole you back to God and all of creation. It's a beautiful story. And you see it right by Genesis 3. By Genesis 4, Eve thinks to herself, okay, we're going to create humans. And she and Adam have their two sons, Cain and Abel. And I imagine Eve is going, okay, one of these sons, this is gonna be the seed. I see two different seeds right away, but one of these is gonna be the seed. And Cain kills Abel. God protects him, but imagine Eve and Adam are going, wow, one of the first deaths of human beings in Genesis 4. What's gonna happen? The Bible then says she has another child named Seth, and this is where we get to Genesis 5. Check this out. We're not gonna read the whole thing because it's all genealogy of 10 different people, but we're gonna hone in on a couple of things, what we can learn. Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So here's another almost creation story from Genesis 2. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So they just skipped right past Cain and Abel, and now we're looking at a new line that's gonna lead us to Noah. Let's skip down to verse 21, because I like these two people. Not that I don't like the other people, but these are interesting to me. 
When Enoch, if you've heard of Enoch, had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and other sons and daughters. Now, let me pause for a second. When you see these these, uh, numbers of years, 300, 600, 900, there's all sorts of theological ideas. Some of it's like these numbers actually mean something. They're not actual. They're not literary uh, or or literal. For me, I, I, I have no problem thinking of them literally because I believe in the supernatural God. And just like if we make a copy of a copy of a copy, like it gets worse and worse and worse, um, that what Adam created and Eve created within themselves being made in the image of God before sin fully had its grasp, maybe they could live that long from eternity to 900 years. Okay, that's not that long. And so that's kind of how I would grasp it. It's really interesting when you think about it this way, verse 23. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch, I love this scripture, walked with God and he was not. For God took him. I love that. He's not just like one day on a stroll and God just took him. But right, this idea of journeying, doing life with God, walking with God, waking up just like Adam and Eve did in the cool of day and walking with him. It's not literally just walking, it is doing life, it is journeying, it is being with him, it is relationally connected, not just ritually or religiously connected. It is knowing this God and getting to know him. And I love this because it said, he liked him so much, they walked so much together, he's just like, dude, I'm gonna take this guy. You're coming with me, like we're so intimate, let's just go. Let's, let's make this happen. And I love what it says next. Thus, All the days of Methuselah, this is Enoch's son, were 969 years and he died. Now you might say, okay, that's not very interesting. What's interesting is what the name Methuselah means. Methuselah means when he dies, it comes or judgment comes. And I think it's very cool that Enoch, in his fallen state, God still wants to have a relationship, still coming to him. And he says, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. And he's walking with God. He's discovering God. He's getting to know God. He's opening himself up to God. And God, when you walk with him and journey with him, he not only is with you, but he speaks to you. Jesus will say, my sheep hear my voice. God wants to speak to you. Now he speaks his word He's very direct in that, but he wants to speak to you. He wants to speak personally to you, even today. Not just generally, but personally as you walk with him. And Enoch is walking with him, and I believe God spoke and gave Enoch the name of his son because he named his son. When he dies, it comes, judgment comes. Enoch is walking with God, and God tells him, listen, I can't contend with humanity too long. We're going to talk about this next week. And there is a flood coming. There is judgment coming. And he shares with him, but I'm gonna wait till your son dies. I'm gonna wait until you're done. And I wanna reveal this to you, but not only how beautiful that is in relationship with God, but listen, he became Methuselah, the oldest person that ever lived in recorded scripture. Why is that important? Well, Psalm 86, 15 says this, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. I love this, slow to anger. 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You read it again in Psalm 103, verse 8, Psalm 145, 8. God is slow to anger. We're even seeing a picture of God not, not desiring to cast judgment, not desiring to just give his justice, but slow to anger, hoping maybe people will turn. Hoping maybe, it's, he wasn't the first person to die. He didn't die at 30. He died at 969 because God is slow to anger. Let me say this. Anger is not a bad thing. If you're never angry about anything, you're a sociopath. Like, it's scary. You don't have emotion. That's scary. You're not Spock. Sorry, Scott. You're not Spock. <laughs> anger in and of itself is not a bad emotion. It needs to be controlled. And I love that God doesn't just while off and he's ready to spank you right away. He's ready to get you right away. But he's slow to anger. He wants to give an opportunity for you to come to know him. And he speaks to Enoch. Have you ever had the Lord speak to you? I remember one of the first time the Lord spoke, spoke to me. And let me say, if, if you're hearing like audible God speaking and other people are hearing it, like be afraid. Uh, not because he can't do that. He can do anything. But if he has to like shake you and be that loud, it's because you're about to go through some serious trial and you needed strong confirmation of his word. Most of the time, when you're in a relationship with God and you're walking with God, it's a lot like how your mom could look at you and she could just give you a look and you know, oh no, I'm in trouble. Or she could give you a nudge and you know, oh, I need to be quiet or I need to do this. A lot of the speaking of the Lord when you're walking with him isn't fully audible. In fact, if it is fully audible and he has to shake you to get your attention, you ain't paying attention. He is very near to those who walk with him and he's talking to us. He's speaking to us. Most often he speaks through his word. I can't tell you how many times I get up, do my devotion or one year Bible or, or read clcstarter.com plug and, and I got nothing out of it. Have you ever read, read the Bible and got nothing out of it? If you haven't, you're lying. And I'm just like, I got nothing. Lord, I, I know this is good. This is a great story. I got nothing, but I'm trusting you and I'm telling you it never fails. The, the, by the end of that day, I've talked to somebody. God brought that to my, my, my ears, and it was for that person. It wasn't for me. It was for someone else. It's as if God wants to use me to help speak his word into other people. He's not just like, this is just for you, buddy. He's personal, but he's also public because he cares about every person here. So maybe he's walking with you and talking to you for someone else. But if you don't do the, the discipline and experience the delight of walking with God, you won't get to experience him speaking to you in this way and through his word. Now, in Genesis 5, we see these two characters with their names, which is fascinating. But there's actually 10 genealogies that you also see in Luke chapter 3. Luke goes through the genealogies showing that Jesus came ultimately from Seth's lineage, which is fascinating, um, as well as you see it in 1 Kings. The Bible is like trying to tell you something when it does multiples. There's something interesting about these 10 names, and this Genesis chapter 5 is trying to show us the genealogy, like think of Ancestral.com. Where did I come from? How does that affect maybe my health mentally, physically, physically? 
because these genes, even what we know now with epigenetics, how trauma affects us, how past things that our parents did affect us, whether we know it or not. It's amazing what we're finding out scientifically now. You see this with the genealogy passing down as if God is trying to teach us something and show us something. Look at this, from Adam to Noah. Here are the names, the 10 names that we get and what they mean in Hebrew. Adam means man or humanity, Adam. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Canaan means sorrow. Mahalalel means the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah, as we said, his death shall bring. Lamech means the despairing. And Noah means comfort or rest. Why would the children of Israel need to know this genealogy. And it's not every single person, but these 10 that constantly appear to show this seed, this line that the Messiah is gonna come out of. And what does this speak to us? Well, I wanna conclude that we see the beautiful story of God in the midst of these 10 genealogies. And it paints a picture, and here's what it looks like. Man, Adam, is appointed Mortal sorrow. But the God who is to be praised shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. I mean, even in the genealogy, like, why am I reading this? This is so dumb. God is speaking his redemptive story. I don't know about you, but this gives me great comfort because when I look at the world right now and the dumpster fire that it feels like it is, I mean, in a way, it was nice to go to Israel for two weeks, but I kept telling them, me and G kept talking like, man, I wonder what's going on because we're like eight hours ahead. I wonder what's going on in the States because I know we're going to come back to something that we need to talk about, that we need to explore. And I'm not weary or mad about it. This is life, and this is life with news at your fingertip, with social media at your fingertip, with everyone on fire, and I believe the enemy loving it because he's just going to get your dopamine and anger because then you're just going to continue to click and like. And we need to know what's going on in culture, and we need to be about it, but I'm telling you, in the midst of all that constantly and every week, there's something new. I'm not saying I want to get away from the world. I'm not saying drift away, but I am saying, if you don't know that God has a plan, and the plan is a man, Jesus, who will be appointed. He will become man. Give us of his rights, the Bible says, to be mortal and sorrowful. It calls Jesus in the scripture a man full of sorrow, acquainted with grief. But God, who is to be praised, he's going to come down in the form of this man. He's going to teach, he's going to guide, he's going to instruct. And his death will bring those of us that despair great comfort. And if you go on in your life, let me tell you, you might be struggling so much with so many things happening, 
Maybe to you, the world is on fire. It's just going crazy right now. And it's just stirring up all the anger and all the things happening right now. And you know what? Again, anger in itself is not bad. If it leads to good, godly wisdom action that God leads you into, let's go for it. Let's change things. We should do that. At the same time, if it leads you to take it on your own and just, I'm gonna go in these emotions, in these ways, I'm not gonna trust God. Listen, you will find yourself broken and defeated very, very quickly. You will find yourself having a hard time to get up to go to work. You'll find yourself saying what I hear a lot of people say, well, I don't want to have kids. Why would I want to bring kids into this crazy world? And you will be despairing because you don't have great comfort that let me tell you right now today, there are about a million things God will do for your behalf, or he is working out for your behalf right now that you'll never give acknowledge to him for. You'll never give praise to him for. You won't even know he did it. And the worst thing we cannot give him praise for is becoming a man, becoming our comforter, giving us the ability to really walk with him and talk with him, serve him. I don't know about you, but nowadays it's, it's hard to trust authority. It's hard to trust motives. But I'm telling you, when I read the Bible, I go, man, God, I don't understand anything, but I see your goodness. We get the chance to go to Israel and you get to like see the sites that Jesus died at, that we, that we know historically. We have architectural proof now, like this is where the Bible says this was and it's there. It's not fiction and you're looking at it and you're going, wow, this is amazing. And you have a memorial of God's goodness on a cross. How can we be in despair? How can we not put our hope and trust that God is in control. And then secondly, that he wants to lead you and guide you into that truth. Next week, we're gonna talk about this, how the spirit of God wants to fill you and guide you into this truth. God, in his comfort, his beauty, his glory, has a plan, not for your ultimate destruction or your dismay or your hopelessness. So some of us in here might be really grieved and feel hopeless, even off circumstances where we're seeing great fear, or racism, or shootings, or laws being made that we don't really love and we're, we're grieving. And some of us love what's like, like have a great life and things are going really well and we're really happy about this and that. Either way you are right now, there's despair at the end of that road without putting your full hope in Jesus. He's the only one that can or will ever fulfill your hope and your desires and bring true comfort. This is the message we see right at the beginning of Genesis. Creation, fall, God's plan and action in redemption. And one day, the renewal of all humanity. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that our hope can be in you, that you are our healer, 
Jesus, Yeshua, our Redeemer, the rock which we can stand. Thank you that your word, you, are more precious than silver, more costly than gold. In the midst of everything happening in our life, whether personally, publicly, outwardly, inwardly, God, I pray that we will see you, put our hope in you. Put our hope not only in your salvation, God, but also in the guiding of your spirit that you are Lord. You are holy, different, set apart. And you've called us in dignity in your image to be like you. Thank you for raising up a standard for us. We can walk with you and talk with you and watch you move in our life. If you're in here and you're struggling with hopelessness, despair, there's good news. God's got a plan. And it's not just about you, but he wants to use you to continue in it. As we focus and see him, I pray your hope is in him. Maybe you're in here and life is good. It's going great. Don't put your hope in current circumstances. Put your hope in what Christ can do in your life to walk with him and to talk with him.